From Eric Public Media and the Alaska Ice Corporation, this is the podcast Wikiredia, wherein we read from start to finish the Wikipedia entries that we find most interesting. Today we're going to be covering the Wikipedia entry of the British punk rock band The Clash. The original Wikipedia page lives at www.wikipedia.org slash the underscore clash. And we're tapping into this text using the Creative Commons license, which permits adaptation and retransmission of the original work, provided attribution is made. Wikiredia is similarly distributed under the same Creative Commons license. This is The Clash, Wikiredia Episode 1, Data Production, July 14th, 2020. Let's get started. The Clash were an English rock band formed in London in 1976 as a key player in the original wave of British punk rock. They also contributed to the post-punk and new wave movements that emerged in the wake of punk and employed elements of a variety of genres including reggae, dub, funk, ska, and rockabilly. For most of their recording career, The Clash consisted of lead vocalist and rhythm guitarist Joe Strummer, lead guitarist and vocalist Mick Jones, bassist Paul Simonon, and drummer Nicky Topper Hedden. Hedden left the group in 1982, and internal friction led to Jones' departure the following year. The group continued with new members, but finally disbanded in early 1986. The Clash achieved commercial success in the United Kingdom with the release of their self-titled debut album, The Clash, in 1977. Their third album, London Calling, was released in the UK in December 1979, earned them popularity in the United States when it was released there the following month. It was declared the best album of the 1980s a decade later by Rolling Stone. In 1982, The Clash reached new heights of success with the release of Combat Rock, which spawned the U.S. top 10 hit, Rock the Casbah, helping the album to achieve a two-times platinum certification there. A final album, Cut the Crap, was released in 1985. In January 2003, shortly after the death of Joe Strummer, the band, including original drummer Terry Chimes, were introduced into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. In 2004, Rolling Stone ranked The Clash number 28 on its list of 100 Greatest Artists of All Time. Under history, we have Origins, 1974 to 1976. Before The Clash's founding, the band's future members were active in different parts of the London music scene. John Graham Mellor sang and played rhythm guitar in the pub rock act The 101ers, which formed in 1974. By the time The Clash came together two years later, he had already abandoned his original stage name, Woody Mellor, in favor of Joe Strummer, a reference to his rudimentary strumming skills on the ukulele as a boosker in the London underground. Mick Jones played in the proto-punk band London SS, which rehearsed for much of 1975 without ever playing a live show and recording only a single demo. London SS were managed by Bernard Rhodes, a sometimes associate of impresario Malcolm McLaren and a friend of the members of the McLaren-managed band The Sex Pistols. Jones and his bandmates became friendly with The Sex Pistols' Glenn Matlock and Steve Jones, who would later assist them as they tried out potential new members. Among those who auditioned for London SS without making the cut were Paul Simonon, who tried out as a vocalist, and drummer Terry Chimes. Nicky Hedden drummed with the band for a week, then quit. <clears throat> After London SS broke up in early 76, Rhodes continued as Jones' manager. In February, Jones saw the Sex Pistols perform for the first time. Quote, you knew straight away that was it. 
and this was what it was going to be like from now on. It was a new scene, new values, so different from what had happened before, a bit dangerous, unquote. At the instigation of Rhodes, Jones contacted Simonon in March, suggesting that he learn an instrument so he could join the new band Jones was organizing. Soon, Jones, Simonon on bass, Keith Leben on guitar, and, quote, whoever else we could find to really play the drums, unquote, were rehearsing. Chimes was asked to audition for the new band and got the job, although he soon quit. The band was still searching for a lead singer. Chimes recalls one Billy Watts, who, quote, seemed to be like 19 or 18 then, as we all were, unquote, handling the duties for the time. Rose had his eye on Strummer, with whom he made exploratory contact. Jones and Levine had both seen him perform and were impressed as well. Strummer, for his part, was primed to make the switch. In April, he had taken in the opening act for one of his band's gigs, the Sex Pistols. Strummer later explained, quote, I knew something was up, so I went out in the crowd, which was fairly sparse, and I saw the future with a snotty handkerchief right in front of me. It was immediately clear. Pub rock was, quote, Hello, you bunch of drunks, I'm going to play these boogies and I hope you like them, unquote. The Pistols came out that Tuesday evening and their attitude was, quote, Here's our tunes and we couldn't give a flying fuck whether you like them or not. In fact, we're going to play them even if you fucking hate them, unquote, unquote. On the 30th of May, Rhodes and Levine met surreptitiously with Strummer after a 101ers gig. Strummer was invited to meet up at the band's rehearsal location on Davis Road. After Strummer turned up, Levine grabbed his guitar, stood several inches away from Strummer, looked him in the eye, and began playing Keys to Your Heart, one of Strummer's own tunes. <clears throat> Rhodes gave him 48 hours to decide whether he wanted to join the new band that would rival the Pistols. Within 24 hours, Strummer agreed. Simonon later remarked, Once we had Joe on board, it all started to come together. Strummer introduced the band to his old-school friend Pablo LeBritton, who sat in on drums during Strummer's first few rehearsals with the group. LeBritton's stint with the band did not last long. He subsequently joined 999, and Terry Chimes, who later referred to as, quote, one of the best drummers, unquote, in their circle, became the, became the band's regular drummer. In Westway to the World, Jones also says, I don't think Terry was officially hired or anything. He had just been playing with us. Chimes did not take to Strummer at first. Quote, he was like 22 or 23 or something and that seemed old to me then. And he had all these retro clothes and this croaky voice, unquote. Simonon came up with the band's name after they had briefly dubbed themselves the Weak Heart Drops and the Psychotic Negatives. He later explained the name's origin as, quote, it really came to my head when I started reading the newspapers and a word that kept recurring was the word clash. So I thought, the clash, what about that to the others? And they and Bernard, they went for it, unquote. Under the heading Early Gigs in the Growing Scene, 1976. After rehearsing with Strummer for less than a month, The Clash made their debut on July 4, 1976, supporting the Sex Pistols at the Black Swan in Sheffield. The band apparently wanted to make it on stage before their rivals in The Damned, another London SF spinoff, made their own scheduled debut two days later. The Clash would not play in front of an audience again for another five weeks. Levine was becoming disaffected with his position in the group. At the Black Swan, he approached the Sex Pistols' lead singer, John Lydon, and suggested they form a band together if the Pistols broke up. Hours after their debut, the band members, along with most of the Sex Pistols and the rest of London's inner circle of punks, showed up at Dingwell's club to attend a concert by New York's leading punk band, The Ramones. 
Afterward, quote, came the first example of rivalry-induced squabbling that was to dog the punk scene and undermine any attempts to promote a spirit of unity among the bands involved, unquote. Simonon got into a scuffle with J.J. Burnell, the bass player of The Stranglers, a slightly older band. The Stranglers were, pub- were publicly identified with the punk scene, but were not part of the inner circle centered on the Sex Pistols. With Rhodes insisting that the band not perform live again until they were much tighter, the clash rehearsed intensely over the following month. Strummer later described how seriously the band devoted itself to forging a distinct identity. Quote, We were almost Stalinist in the way that you shed all your friends or everything you'd known and everything that you'd played before. Unquote. Strummer and Jones shared most of the writing duties. Joe would give me the words and I would make a song out of them, Jones later said. Sometimes they would meet in the office over their Camden rehearsal studio to collaborate directly. According to a later description of Strummer's, quote, Bernie, Bernie Rhodes, that is, Bernie would say, an issue, an issue. Don't write about love. Write about what's affecting you, what's important, unquote. Strummer took the lead vocals on the majority of songs. In some cases, he and Jones shared the lead. Once the band began recording, Jones would rely, excuse me, once the band began recording, Jones would rarely have a solo lead on more than one song per album, though he would be responsible for two of the group's biggest hits. On 13th of August, The Clash, sporting a paint-blattered, excuse me, on 13 August, The Clash, sporting a paint-splattered Jackson Pollock look, played before a small, imitation-only audience in their Camden studio. Among those in attendance was the sounds critic, Giovanni Didamo. He His review described the band as a runaway train, so powerful... Runaway Train, so powerful, they're the first group to come along who can really scare the Sex Pistols shitless, unquote. On 29th of August, The Clash and the Manchester, excuse me, on the 29th of August, The Clash and Manchester's Buzzcocks opened for the Sex Pistols at the screen on the green, The Clash's first public performance since July 4th. The triple bill is seen as pivotal to the British punk scene's crystallization into a movement, though NME reviewer... Charles Shar Murray wrote, quote, The Clash are sort of a garage band that should be speedily returned to the garage, <laughs> preferably with the motor skill with the motor still running. Strummer later credited Murray's comments with inspiring the band's composition, Garage Land. In early September, Levine was fired from the Clash. Strummer would claim that Levine's dwindling interest in the band owed to his supposedly, supposedly extravagant use of speed, a charge Levine has denied. Levine and Leiden would form Public Image Limited in 1978. On September 21st, The Clash performed publicly for the first time without Levine at another seminal concert, the 100 Club Punk Special, sharing the bill with the Sex Pistols, Sushi and the Banshees, and Subway Sect. Chimes left in late November. He was briefly replaced by Rob Harper as The Clash toured in support of the Sex Pistols during December's Anarchy Tour. Punk Outbreak and UK Fame, 1977-1979 By the turn of the year, punk had become a major media phenomenon in the UK. On the 25th of January, 1977, The Clash signed to CBS Records for £100,000, a remarkable amount for a band that had played a total of about 30 gigs and almost none as a headliner. As Clash historian Marcus Gray describes, quote, the band members found themselves having to justify the deal to both the music press and to fans who picked up on the critics' muttered asides about the Clash having sold out to the establishment. Unquote. Mark Perry, founder of the leading London punk periodical Sniff and Glue, let loose with what he would later call his big quote, which was, quote, Punk died the day the Clash signed to CBS. Unquote. 
As one band associate described it, the deal, quote, was later used as a classic example of the kind of contract that no group should ever sign. The group had to pay their own tours, recordings, remixes, artwork, expenses, unquote. Mickey Foote, who worked as a technician at their concerts, was hired to produce The Clash's debut album, and Terry Chimes was drafted back for the recording. The band's first single, White Riot, was released in March 1977 and reached number 34. The album, The Clash, came out the following month. Filled with fiery punk tracks, it also presaged the many eclectic turns the band would make with its cover of the reggae song Police and Thieves. Amidst the Sex Pistols inertia, in the first half of 1977, The Clash found themselves as the flag wavers of the punk rock consciousness, according to music journalist and former punk musician John Robb. Though the album charted well in the UK, climbing quickly to number 12, CBS refused to give it a US release, believing that its raw, barely produced sound would make it unremarkable there. A North American version of the album, with a modified track listing, was eventually released in the US two years later in 1979, after the UK original became the best-selling import album of the year in the United States. Chimes, whose career aspirations owed little to the punk ethos, had left the band again and soon after the recording sessions. He later said, quote, the point, I, the point was I wanted one kind of life and they wanted another. And like why we are working together if we want completely different things? Question mark. End quote. As a result, only Simonon, Jones and Strummer were featured on the band's cover and Chimes was credited as Tory Chimes. Strummer later described what followed, quote, We must have tried every drummer that then had a kit. I mean every drummer in London. I think we counted 205. And that's why we were lost until we found Topper Hedden. Unquote. Hedden, who paid briefly with Jones's London SS, was named Topper by Simonon, who felt he resembled the Topper comic book character Mickey the Monkey. An excellent musician, Hedden could also play bass, guitar, uh, play piano, bass, and guitar. The day after he signed up, he declared, quote, I really wanted to join the Clash. I wanted to give them even more energy than they've got, if that's possible. Unquote. Interviewed over two decades later, he said his original plan was to stay briefly, gain a name for himself, then move on to a better gig. In any event, Strummer later observed, quote, finding someone who not only had the chops, but the strength and the stamina to do it was just the breakthrough for all of us. In May... The band set out on the White Riot tour, headlining a punk package that included the Buzzcocks, Subway Sec, the Slits, and the Prefects. The day after a Newcastle gig, Strummer and Hedden were arrested for stealing pillowcases from their hotel room. That same month, CBS released Remote Control as the debut LP's second single, defying the wishes of the band who saw it as one of the album's weakest tracks. Hedden's first recording with the band was a single was the single Complete Control, which addressed the band's anger at their record label label's behavior. It was co-produced by famed reggae artist Lee Scratch Perry, although Foot was summoned to ground things a bit, and the result was pure punk rock. Released in September 1977, NME noted how CBS allowed the group to quote bait their masters. It rose to number 28 on the British charts and has gone on to be cited as one of punk's greatest singles. In February 78, the band came out with the single Clash City Rockers. June saw the release of White Man in Hammersmith Place, which surprised fans with its reggae rhythm 
an arrangement. Before The Clash began recording their second album, CBS requested that they adopt a cleaner sound than its predecessor in order to reach American audiences. Sandy Perlman, known for his work with Blue Oyster Cult, was hired to produce the record. Simonin later recalled, Recording that album was just the most boring situation ever. It was just so nitpicking, such a contrast to the first album. It ruined any spontaneity, unquote. Strummer agreed that it wasn't our easiest session. Although some listeners complained about its relatively mainstream production style, Give Him Enough Rope received largely positive reviews upon its November release. It hit number two in the UK, but it was not the American breakthrough that CBS had hoped for, reaching only number 128 on the Billboard chart. The album's first UK single, The Hard Rock and Tommy Gun, rose to number 19, the highest chart position for a Clash single to date. In support of the album, the band toured the UK supported by The Slits and The Innocents. The series of concerts, there were more than 30 from Edinburgh to Portsmouth, were promoted as a sort of uh, as the Sorted Out Tour. The band subsequently undertook its first largely successful tour of North America in February 1979. Changing Style and U.S. Breakthrough, 1979-1982 In August and September 1979, The Clash recorded London Calling. Produced by Guy Stevens, a former A&R executive who had worked with Mott the Hoople in Traffic, the double album was a mix of punk rock, reggae, ska, rockabilly, traditional rock and roll, and other elements possessed of an energy that had hardly flagged since the band's early days and more polished production. The title of the track also happened to be heavily influenced by the BBC World Service call signal and the panic that resulted in the Three Mile Island nuclear scare. It is regarded as one of the greatest rock albums ever recorded. Its final track, a relatively straightforward rock and roll number sung by Mick Jones called Train in Vain, was included at the last minute and thus did not appear on the track listing on the cover. It became their first US Top 40 hit, peaking at number 23 on the Billboard chart. In the UK, where Train in Vain was not released as a single, London Calling's title track, stately and beat but unmistakably punk in message and tone, rose to number 11, the highest position any Clash single reached in the UK before the band's breakup. Released in December, London Calling hit number 9 on the British chart in the United States, where it was issued in January 1988, it reached number 27. The cover of the album, based on... Uh, based on the cover of Elvis Presley's self-titled 1956 debut LP, became one of the best known in the history of rock. Its image by photographer Penny Smith of Simonon smashing his bass guitar was later cited as, quote, the best rock and roll photograph of all time by Cube magazine. During this period, The Clash began to be regularly billed as the only band that matters. Musician Gary Lucas, then employed by CBS Records Creative Services Department's claim to have coined that tagline. The epitaph was soon widely adopted by fans and music journalists. Around the turn of the year, the band members attended a special private screening of a new film, Rude Boy. Part fiction, part rockumentary, it tells the story of a Clash fan who leaves his job at a Soho sex shop to become a roadie for the group. The movie, named after the Rude Boy subculture, includes footage of the band on tour at a London Rock Against Racism concert and in the studio recording Give Him Enough Rope. The band was so disenchanted with it that they had better badges make buttons that declared, I don't want Rude Boy Clash film. (laughs) On 27th of February 1980, it premiered at the 30th Berlin International Film Festival, where it won honorable mention. 
The Clash had planned, uh, excuse me, The Clash had planned to record and release a single album every month in 1980. Let me repeat that. The Clash had planned to record and release a single every month in 1980. CBS balked at this idea, and the band came out with an only one single, an original reggae-tuned Bank Robber, in August, before the December release of the 3LP 36-song Sandinista. The album again reflected a broad range of musical styles, including extended dubs and one of the first forays into rap by a major rock band, following Ant Rap by Adam and the Ants, which was released a month earlier. Produced by the band's members with the participation of Jamaican reggae artist Mickey Dredd, Sandinista was their most controversial album to date, both politically and musically. Critical opinion was divided, often often within individual reviews. Trouser Press's Ira Robbins described half the album as great, half as nonsense, and worse. In the new Rolling Stone record guide, Dave Marsh argued, Sandinista is nonsensically cluttered or seems sensically cluttered. One of The Clash's principal concerns is to avoid being stereotyped. The album fared reasonably well in America, charting at number 24. In 1981, the band came out with a single, This Is Radio Clash, that further demonstrated their ability to mix diverse influences such as dub and hip-hop. They set to work on their fifth album in September, originally planning it as a 2LP set with the title Rap Patrol from Fort Bragg. Jones produced one cup, but the other members were dissatisfied. Production duties were handed to Glenn Johns, and the album was conceived as a single LP, released as Combat Rock in May 1982. Though filled with offbeat songs, experiments with sound collage, and spoken word vocals by beat poet Allen Ginsberg, it contained two radio-friendly tracks. The lead-off single in the U.S. was Should I Stay or Should I Go, released in June 1982, and another Jones feature in a rock and roll style to Train in Vain, it received heavy airplay on AOR stations. The follow-up, Rock the Casbah, put lyrics addressing the Iranian, the Iranian clampdown on imports of Western music to a bouncy dance rhythm. The singles were released in the opposite order in the UK, where they were both preceded by Know Your Rights. The music for Rock the Casbah was composed by Hedden, who performed not only the percussion but also the piano and bass heard on the recorded versions. It was the band's biggest U.S. hit ever, charting at number f- number 8, and the video was put into heavy rotation by MTV. The album itself was the band's most successful, hitting number two in the UK and number seven in the US. Disintegration and Breakup, 1982 to 1986. After Combat Rock, The Clash began to disintegrate. Hedden was asked to leave the band just before the album's release because heroin addiction was damaging his health and drumming. Chimes was brought back to drum for the next few months. The loss of Hedden, well liked by the others, exposed growing friction within the band. Jones and Schummer began to feud. The band opened for The Who on a leg of their final tour in the U.S., including a new show, excluding a show at New York's Shea Stadium. Though The Clash continued to tour, tension continued to increase. In early 1983, in early 1983, Chimes left the band after the Combat Rock Tour because of infighting and turmoil. He was replaced by Pete Howard for the U.S. Festival in San Bernardino, California, which the class with the Clash co-headlined along with David Bowie and Van Halen. The band argued with the event's promoters over inflated ticket prices, threatening to pull out unless a large donation was made to a local charity. The group ultimately performed on the 28th of May, the festival's New Music Day, which drew a crowd of 140,000. After the show, members of the band brawled with security staff. 
This was Jones' last appearance with the group. In September 1983, he was fired. Shortly thereafter, he became a founding member of General Public, but left that band as they were recording their first album. Nick Shepard, formerly of the Bristol band based The Cortinas, and Vince White were recruited as The Clash's new guitarists. Howard continued as the drummer. The reconstituted band played its first shows in January 1984 with a batch of new material and launched into the self-financed out-of-control tour, traveling uh, widely over the winter and into the early summer. At a striking Miners Benefit show in December 1984, they announced that a new album would be released in the new year. The recording sessions for Cut the Crap were chaotic, with manager Bernard Rhodes and Strummer working in Munich. Most of the music was played by studio musicians, with Shepard and later White flying in to provide guitar parts. Struggling with Rhodes for control of the band, Strummer returned home. The band went on a busking tour of public spaces and cities throughout the UK, playing acoustic versions of their hits and popular cover tunes. After a concert in Athens, Strummer went to Spain to clear his mind. While he was abroad, the first single from Cut the Crap, The Mournful This Is England, was released to mostly negative reviews. Quote, CBS had paid in advance for it, so they had to put it out, Strummer later explained. I just went, quote, well, fuck this, and fucked off to the mountains in Spain to sit sobbing under a palm tree while Bernie had to deliver a record, unquote. However, critic Dave Marsh later championed This Is England as one of the top 1,001 rock singles of all time. The single has also received retroactive praise from Q Magazine and others. This is England, much like the rest of the album that came out later that year, had been drastically re-engineered by Rhodes, with synths and football-style chants added to Strummer's incomplete recordings. Although Howard was an adept drummer, drum, machine, drum machines were used for virtually all of the percussion tracks. For the remainder of his life, Strummer largely disowned the album, although he did profess that I really like This Is England and the album track North and South. In early 1986, The Clash disbanded. Strummer later described the group's end, quote, When The Clash collapsed, we were tired. There had been a period of intense activity in five years. There had been a lot of intense activity during the five years. Secondly, I felt we'd run out of gasoline. And thirdly, I wanted to shut up and let someone else have a go at it. This period of disintegration, featuring interviews with members of The Clash, is is subject matter of Danny Garcia's book and film, The Rise and Fall of The Clash. Collaborations, Reunions, and Strummer's Death, 1986 to Present After the breakup, Strummer contacted contacted Jones in an effort to reform The Clash. Jones, however, had already formed a new band, Big Audio Dynamite, that had released its debut late in 1985. The two did work together on their retrospective 1986 projects. Jones helped out with the two songs Strummer wrote and performed for the Sid and Nancy soundtrack. Strummer, in turn, co-wrote a number of the tracks on the second Big Audio Dynamite album, number 10, Upping Street, which he also co-produced. With Jones committed to Big Audio Dynamite, Strummer moved on to various solo projects and screen acting work. Simon Inf formed a band called Havana 3AM, Hedden recorded a solo album before once again spiraling into drug abuse. Chimes drummed with a succession of different acts. On March 2, 1991, a reissue of Should I Stay or Should I Go gave The Clash its first and only number one UK single. That same year, Strummer reportedly cried when he learned that Rock the Casbah had been adopted as a slogan by US bomber pilots in the Gulf War. In 1999, Strummer, Jones, and Simonon cooperated in compelling 
in compiling of the live album From Here to Eternity, a video documentary, West Way to the World. On November 7, 2002, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame announced that The Clash would be inducted the following March. On 15th of November, Jones and Strummer shared the stage, performing three Clash songs during a London benefit show by Joe Strummer and the Mescaleros. Strummer, Jones, and Hedden wanted to play a reunion show to coincide with their introduction, induction into the Hall of Fame, but Simonon did not want to participate because he believed that playing the High Price event would not have been in the spirit of the Clash. Strummer's sudden death from congenital heart defect from a congenital heart defect on December 22, 2002, ended any possibility of a full reunion. In March 2003, the Hall of Fame induction took place. The band members inducted were Strummer, Jones, Simonon, Chimes, and Hedden. In early 2008, Carbon Silicon, a new band founded by Mick Jones and his former London SS bandmate, Tony James, entered into a six-week residency at London's Inn on the Green. On opening night, January 11, 2008, Hedden joined the band for The Clash's Train in Vain. An encore followed with Hedden playing drums on Should I Stay or Should I Go, this being the first time since 1982 that Hedden and Jones had performed together on stage. Jones and Hedden returned in September 2009 to record the 1970s Clash B-side Jail Guitar Doors with Billy Bragg. The song is a namesake of a charity founded by Bragg which gives musical instruments and lessons to prison inmates. Joan, Hedden, and Bragg were backed by former inmates during the session which was filmed for a documentary about the charity, Breaking Rocks. Simonon and Jones were featured on the little track of the Gorillaz album Plastic Beach in 2010. This reunion marked the first time that the two performers had worked together in over 20 years. They later joined Gorillaz on their world tour for the remainder of 2010. In July 2012, Strummer's daughters, Jazz and Lola, gave a rare interview to discuss their upcoming 10th on Jan excuse me, on July 22, Strummer's daughters, Jazz and Lola, gave a rare interview to discuss the upcoming 10th anniversary of their father's passing, his legacy, and the possibility of a clash reunion had their father lived. Jazz said, quote, "There was talk about the clash reforming before he died, but there have been talk for years and years about them reforming. They they've been offered stupid amounts of money to do it, but they were very good at keeping their moral ground and saying no. But I think if Dad hadn't died, it would have happened. It felt like it was in the air." Unquote. On the 9th of September 2013 in the UK, and a day later in the US, The Clash released Sound System, a 12-disc box set featuring their studio albums completely remastered on 8 discs, with an additional 3 discs featuring demos, non-album singles, rarities, and b-sides. A DVD with previously un unseen footage by both Don Letts and Julian Temple, original promo videos and live footage, an owner's manual booklet, reprints of the band's original Armageddon Times fanzine, as well as a brand new edition curated and designed by Paul Simonon and merchandise including dog tags, badges, stickers, and an exclusive Clash poster. Both Mick Jones and Paul Simonon oversaw the project, including the remasters. The box set came in a package shaped as an 80s ghetto blaster. The box was accompanied by a five album studio set. Uh, the, box was, the box set was accompanied by five album studio set, which contains only the first five studio albums, excluding Cut the Crap, and The Clash Hits Back, a 33-track, two-CD best-of collection, sequenced to copy the set played by the band at the Brixton Fair Deal, now the Academy, on July 19, 1982. In a September 3, 2013 interview with Rolling Stone, McJones discussed the band reuniting, saying that would likely never have happened. Jones said, quote, there were a few moments at time 
at the time I was up for it, uh, Joe was up for it, Paul wasn't, and neither probably was Topper, who didn't wind up even coming in the end. It didn't look like a performance was going to happen anyway. I mean, you usually play at that ceremony when you get in. Joe had passed by that point, so we didn't. We were never in agreement. It was never at a point where all of us wanted to do it at the same time. Most importantly for us, we became friends after the group broke up and continued that way for the rest of time. That was more important to us than the band. Quote, Jones also stated that sound system that the sound system box set was the last of the last time he will ever be involved in the band's releases. Quote, I'm not thinking anymore about Clash releases. This is it for me, and I say that with an exclamation mark, Jones said. On September 6, 2013, the three surviving members of the group of the classic lineup, Mick Jones, Paul Simonon, and Topper Hedden, reunited again for an exclusive BBC Radio 6 music show to promote their legacy and the release of Sound System. In an October 2013 interview with BBC Six Music, Jones confirmed that Strummer did have intentions of a Clash reunion, and in fact, new music was being written for a possible album. In the months prior to Strummer's death, Jones and Strummer began working on new music for what he thought would be the next Mescaleros album. Jones said, quote, We wrote a batch, and we didn't, used, uh, we didn't use to write one. We used to write a batch at a time, like Gumbo. The idea he was going... The idea was he was going into the studio with the Mescaleros during the day and then sending them all home. I'd come in at night and would work all night. Jones said months had passed following their work together when he ran into Strummer at an event. Jones was curious as to what would become of the songs he and Strummer were working on, and Strummer informed him that they were going to be used for the next Clash album. Politics. The Clash's music was often charged with left-wing ideological sentiments. Strummer, in particular, was a committed socialist. The Clash are credited with pioneering the advocacy of radical politics and punk rock, and were dubbed Thinking Man's Yobs by NME. Like many early punk bands, the Clash protested against monarchy and aristocracy. However, unlike many of their peers, they rejected nihilism. Instead, they found solidarity with a number of contemporary liberation movements and were involved with such groups as the Anti-Nazi League. On the 30th of April 1978, The Clash played the Rock Against Racism concert in London's Victoria Park for a crowd of as many as 100,000 people. Strummer wore a t-shirt identifying two left-wing terrorist groups. The words Brigade Rossa, Italy's Red Brigades, appeared alongside the insignia of West Germany's Red Army Faction. Their politics were made explicit in the lyrics of such early recordings as White Riot, which encouraged disaffected white youths to riot like their black counterparts. Career opportunities, which addressed the alienation of low-paid, routinized jobs and discontent over the lack of alternatives, and London's burning about the bleakness and boredom of life in the inner city. Artist Carolyn Kuhn, who was associated with the punk scene, argued that, quote, though these these tough, militaristic songs were what we needed as we went into Thatcherism. Unquote. The scope of the band's political interests widened on later recordings. The title of Sandinista celebrated the left-wing rebels who had recently overthrown Nicaraguan despot and, and Anastasio Somoza de Baye. And the album was filled with songs by other political issues extending far beyond British shores. Washington Bullets address covert military operations around the globe, while the call-up was a meditation on U.S. draft policies. Combat Rock's Straight to Hell is described by scholars Simon Reynolds and Joy Press as an, quote, around the world at war, 
Around the World at War in Five Verses Guided Tour of Hell Zones Where the Boy Soldiers Have Languished, unquote. The band's political sentiments were reflected in their resistance to the music industry's usual profit motivations. Even at their peak, tickets to shows and souvenirs were reasonably priced. The group insisted that CBS sell their double and triple album sets London Calling and Sandinista for the price of a single album each, then five pounds, succeeding with the former and compromising with the latter by agreeing to sell it for £5.99 and forfeit all their performance royalties on the first 200,000 sales. These VFM, value for money, principles meant that they were constantly in debt to CBS and only started to break even around 1982. Musical style, legacy, and influence. The Clash are mainly described as a punk rock band. According to Stephen Thomas Erdlewine of All Music, the Sex Pistols may have been the first British punk rock band, but the Clash were the definitive British punk rockers. Later in the band's career, the Clash started to use elements of many genres of music, including reggae, rockabilly, dub, and R&B. With their album London Calling, the band expanded their breadth of musical styles into the first double album of the post-punk period. The Clash's music has also been described as experimental rock and new wave. They have also used reggae since their beginnings. They've covered reggae songs and even written their own. They even used Lover's Rock on London's on London on the London Calling album. In 2004, Rolling Stone ranked Clash number 28 on its list of 100 Greatest Artists of All Time. And in 2010, the band was ranked 22nd on VH1's 100 Greatest Artists of All Time. According to The Times, The Clash's debut, along with Nevermind the Bullocks, Here's the Sex Pistols, is punk's definitive statement, and London Calling remains one of the most influential rock albums. In Rolling Stone's 2003 list of 500 greatest albums of all time, London Calling ranked number 8, highest entry by a punk rock band. The Clash was number 77, and Sandinista was at number 404 in the magazine's 2004 list of the 500 greatest songs of all time. London Calling ranked at number 15, and the highest for any song by a punk rock band. Four other Clash songs made the list. Quote, Should I Stay or Should I Go? Train in Vain at number 292, Complete Control at 361, and White Man in Hammersmith Place at 430. London Calling ranked 48 in the magazine's 2008 list of 100 greatest guitar solos, guitar songs of all time. Jake Burns of Stiff Little Fingers, the first major punk band from Northern Ireland, explained, in the, uh, explained the record's impact. Quote, The Big Watershed was a Clash album. That was the go out, cut your hair, stop mucking about time, you know? Up to that point, we'd been singing about the bowling, about bowling down California, about bowling down California highways. I mean, it meant nothing to me. Although the damned and the pistols were great, they were only exciting musically. Lyrically, I couldn't really make a lot out of it. To realize the Clash were actually singing about their own lives in West London was like a bolt out of the blue. The Clash also inspired many musicians who were only loosely associated, if at all, with punk. The band's embrace of ska, reggae, and England's Jamaican subculture helped provide the impetus for the two-tone movement that emerged amid the fallout of the punk explosion. Other musicians who began performing while The Clash were active and acknowledged their debt to the band include Billy Bragg and Aztec Camera. U2's The Edge has compared The Clash's inspirational effect to that of the Ramones. Both gave young rock musicians at large a, quote, sense that the door of possibility had swung open. He wrote, quote, The Clash, more than any other group, kickstarted a thousand garage bands across Ireland and the UK. Seeing them perform was a life-changing experience. While the Sex Pistols debut gig at Manchester's 
Lesser Free Trade Hall has been acknowledged as the starting point of that city's punk rock scene. The Clash's first gig at Eric's, supported by the Specials, served as a similar watershed for Liverpool. The gig was witnessed by Jane Casey, Julian Cope, Pete Wiley, Pete Burns, Bill Drummond, Holly Johnson, Will Sargent, Bougie, and Ian McCullough, who went on to form Big in Japan, The Teardrop Explodes, and Echo and the Bunnymen, amongst other bands. In later years, The Clash's influence can be heard in American political punk bands such as Rancid, Anti-Flag, Bad Religion, No Effects, Green Day, and Rise Against, as well as in the political hard rock of early Manic Street Preachers. California's Rancid in particular are known as incurable Clash zealots. Outside of rock music, Chuck D has credited The Clash as an inspiration for Public Enemy, in particular for the way their use of socially and politically conscious lyrics gained attention from the music press. Quote, they talked about important subjects, so therefore journalists printed what they said, which was very pointed. We took that from The Clash because we were very similar in that regard. Public Enemy just did 10 years later. In 2019, Chuck D narrated Stay Free, The Story of The Clash, an eight-part podcast series produced by Spotify and BBC Studios. According to biographer Antonio Ambrosio, The Clash's involvement with Jamaican music and production styles has inspired similar cross-cultural efforts by bands such as Bad Brains, Massive Attack, 311, Sublime, and No Doubt. Jacob Dylan of The Wallflowers lists London Calling as a record that changed his life. Bands identified with the garage rock revival of the late 1990s and 2000s such as Sweden's The Hives, Australia's The Vines, Britain's The Libertines, and America's The White Stripes and The Strokes evince The Clash's influence. Among the many latter-day British acts defined as being inspired by The Clash are the Baby Shambles, the Future Heads, the Charlatans, and Arctic Monkeys. Before M.I.A. had an international hit with Paper Planes, which is built around a sample from Straight to Hell, she referenced London Calling on 2003's Galag. A cover of The Guns of Brixton by German punk band D. Toten Hosen was was released as a single in 2006. A version by reggae legend Jimmy Cliff with the, the with Tim Armstrong from Rancid was scheduled for release in November 2011. American Irish punk band Dropkick Murphys released a cove a cover of the song on Anti-Heroes versus Dropkick Murphys in 1997. In June 2009, Bruce Springsteen the E Street Band opened their concert in Hyde Park, London with London Calling. The concert was later released on DVD as Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band London Calling live in Hyde Park. Bruce Springsteen, Little Steven, Dave Grohl and Elvis Costello performed the same song at the Grammys in 2003 as a tribute to Joe Strummer, who died the year before. In 2009, Springsteen and the E Street Band covered Strummer's Coma Girl, while in 2014, along with Tom Morello, they opened some of their shows on the High Hopes Tour with Clampdown. The band has also had a notable impact on music in the Spanish-speaking world. In 1997, a Clash tribute album featuring performances by Buenos Aires punk rock bands was released. Many rock and espanol bands such as Tudos Tus Muertos, Café Tacuba, Matita Venicidad, Los Prisneros, Prisneros Tijuana, Tijuana No, and Attacked 77 are indebted to The Clash. Sure, I screwed all those names up. Argentina's Los Fabulosos Cadillacs covered Should I Stay or Should I Go, London Collins' Revolution Rock, and The Guns of Brixton, and invited Mick Jones to sing on their album, Malbicho. The Clash's influence is similar, similarly reflected in Paris-founded Mano Negra's politicized lyrics and fusion of musical styles. The band's 1982 hit, Should I Stay or Should I Go, is featured in multiple episodes of the 2016 Netflix sci-fi drama series Stranger Things, which is set in 1983. 
London Town, a film in which tells the story of the clash of a clash-obsessed teenager who crosses paths with Joe Strummer by happenstance in 1979 and finds his life changing as a result, was released in 2016. The film received mixed reviews and featured timeline inaccuracies, along with wrong song lyrics performed by actors in the film. This has been a reading of the Wikipedia entry on British punk rock band The Clash um, in its entirety, more or less. This, uh, this Wikipedia entry can be found online, obviously, at uh, wikipedia.org slash wiki slash the underscore clash. Um, and I encourage you to check it out, although you've heard the best parts of it right here. Um, this podcast is called Wikiredia, in which we um, find interesting podcast or excuse me, find interesting Wikipedia pages and read them in their entirety um, and distribute under Creative Commons. Uh, check back for more, uh, more interesting stuff from Wikiredia. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode of Wikiredia. Look, before you go, be sure to hit subscribe, follow us on Twitter at It's Wikiredia, and tell your friends. What do you want to listen to? Send topic ideas to our email, which is wikiredia at pm.me. Our producer and narrator, that's me, is Eric Gorris. Our engineer is OJ Tingles, and our content editor is Johnny Rocketship. We ask you to support this show by following and sharing, but more importantly, just listening. We also ask that you do your part to support Wikipedia itself by considering a donation donation to the Wikipedia Foundation. That can be done at wikipedia.org. All, or at least the vast majority, of the words spoken on this show are from the text of Wikipedia entries, and we're using those words under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license, which grants us, and in fact anyone, the right to adapt the original work remix it, and then to distribute and transmit the work even for commercial purposes. This license requires that we name the author of the original work, which in this case is Wikipedia. Wikiredia itself is also distributed under the same Creative Commons attribution, Sharealike 3.0 license. Wikiredia is a production of Eric Public Media and the Alaska Ice Corporation. <laughs>